HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Sexton Single Malt Irish Whiskey, the best-selling Irish single malt in the U.S. The Sexton is an unexpected modern malt for the everyman, rich in hue, approachable in taste, and memorable in character. Learn more at thesexton.com. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, HRN's weekly food news roundup. This week, we're celebrating pride. We speak to the bakers who created a custom wedding cake for Charlie Craig and David Mullins, the couple behind the Masterpiece Cake Shop Supreme Court case. We felt that what happened to Charlie and David was an absolute injustice. Kat Johnson addresses the controversy surrounding Anthony Porosky, Queer Eye's food and wine expert. Many viewers thought these recipes were unsophisticated. And finally, Hannah Forden speaks with nutrition educator Leah Kurtz about the relationship between veganism and queer identity. It's an interesting way in which food can challenge invisible value systems even greater than sexuality does. Listen to Meat and Three, that's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E this week, and celebrate pride with HRN. Available on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and your favorite listening apps. Welcome to HRN Happy Hour. It's five o'clock somewhere, and somewhere is Bushwick, and I yell at the top of the show for David Tashore. That's You know what I like. <laughs> I'm Kat Johnson, the communications director here at HRN, and I'm here with my co-host, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Welcome, Kat Johnson. Hey. Hey. <laughs> uh, it's happy hour. It's Thursday. It's five o'clock. We are in a jam-packed studio today. Kat, are we not? Yes. Uh, we've got some new folks and some old folks and some folks who've been working on the team also for a while. Um, we have Mary Margaret McCartney. Welcome. Hi. <laughs> we have our distinguished Julia Child alumna, Jordan Warner, with us. Hello. To my right is so Hannah Forden. We are so glad. Um, <laughs> Hannah Forden, we're glad to have you with us every day. Every Thursday. <laughs> Happy Thursday. I'm not going to yell. You guys did all the yelling for me. We're Good also point. super fortunate to have with us in the studio our, the lovely, the one and only Victoria Harvey. Hi. Welcome, Victoria. She was one of our Saxelby scholars from the past uh, semester, past year. I keep wanting to say yeah. season, but that's not what they call it when you're in school. 
Um, and then in the booth, as always, making us all sound great or something approximating that, David Tadashore. <laughs> yeah, thanks for the vote of confidence. And uh, no, it's not you, it's me. Um, and Margaret Kelly, my uh, vocal coach extraordinaire <laughs> and uh, our special custom content and special projects coordinator. Margaret, thank you. What? Are you still in there? Yeah. Hi. What up, guys? What, what up? Um, Philly, what up? Philly represent. Hey, yo, yo, Philly represent. <laughs> Uh, so we also have some, some special guests in the studio. Yes, we do. We have a friend of the station, Will Hickox from Riff Raff. Hi. Thanks for joining us. Will was generous enough to provide some uh, amazing ricotta for our winter gala last year. So we've loved him ever since. And we also have Jared Brown all the way from London. And he is the master distiller at Sipsmith. Wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. Okay, well, we're going to get more into an interview with you guys in just a bit. But first, we have a couple of announcements that we want to make. Whoa, hitting us with the news music right off the top. Uh, we have an event coming up next Thursday, June 21st, on the beautiful rooftop of 100 Bogart. This is the building down the street where we have our offices, also an amazing co-working space. The event that we're hosting is called Changing the Conversation. It is all about... Uh, creating space for women, people of color, and the LGBTQ community in the food world. So come on over, uh, find the link to the Eventbrite on our Facebook page, Heritage Radio Network. And uh, we're excited to see you and really come for the amazing panel, come for the delicious food that has been donated by our wonderful partners, and for the incredible view of the Manhattan skyline from the tallest building in our little corner of Bushwick. It's true. Did you mention tickets are free? Tickets are now free because we have a generous sponsor, TD Bank, who uh, was excited to support the event, and we were able to make it accessible for all. So Thanks, TD. Come. Thank you, TD. We love you guys and love that you're supporting this event, and uh, we hope to see you all there. RSVP at Eventbrite, please, and uh, can't wait to see you on Thursday. And then the following Thursday on June 28th, I'm super excited, and if I may brag on myself for a moment. The New York Times wrote about this event that I'm participating in uh, yeah. at MoFAD. Um, I'm going to be in conversation with Mark Kurlansky on Thursday, June 28th at 6.30 p.m. He just released a book a couple months ago called Milk, a 10,000-Year Food Fracas. And it's all about the history of dairy and how that relates to agriculture, the environment, child-rearing, uh, cheese. Everybody loves cheese. Uh, there will be a lot of dairy products to eat there and, and a conversation about all of these, you know, various topics. Um, so you can go to mofad.org for tickets. I think they're very close to selling out. So I would say if you want to go, grab the tickets soon. And Florence Fabricant says you should go. So you should go. It was a big, big deal. It was very excited. I was very excited about yeah. that. Um, and then one other thing that I wanted to mention is that our membership drive is starting soon. And so Hannah, our membership coordinator, would you like to say a few words about that? Absolutely. Um, so, uh, get ready. Cause I'm going to be bothering you quite a lot for the next, uh, six weeks. Um, so starting, uh, next Tuesday, the 19th, we are starting our annual summer fund drive. As you know, we have two fund drives a year, so we don't bother you a lot. But when we do, we really need you to come through and help support the station. We are trying to raise $25,000 this summer, and we need your help to make sure that we can keep giving you the best in food radio for free. Um, so you can go to heritageradionetwork.org to donate and get a head start on the summer fund drive, and we will really appreciate it. You can get some swag, t-shirt, koozie, potholder, whatever you want. Yeah. Thanks, Anna. 
Um, all right. So now I want to turn back to our esteemed guest today. Will, I'll start with you. Uh, we met you towards the end of last year uh, through our friend Emily Pearson, and you joined us with, for our winter gala, which was so, ended up so far beyond our expectations with an event that we had the capability of throwing. And you created a very, very special past canopy for the, um, the guests there. Can you talk a little bit about that? And then we'll just kind of segue into what Riff Raff is all about. Yeah. So uh, first off, thank you very much for having me at the event. It was a lot of fun. Good to see some familiar faces. Um, and for the event, I did our, our ricotta cheese, but uh, with paired with hot honey and a bacon crostini. So uh, pretty simple, really highlighting you know the clean flavor flavors of the ricotta and the spicy honey. So where did you get the idea to kind of center a whole company around ricotta? Uh, it's been a long time coming. So. My business partners and I originally we, we wanted to do a uh, a restaurant actually, and that's that's my background. I've been working in restaurants for a long time, and uh, you know the more and more we went down that path, the more and more we thought that a restaurant's not always a sustainable option for uh, a healthy life and for you know financially for for many reasons. Um, so we we decided that we wanted to do a retail product. And um, we sort of um, centered around doing some sort of snackable cheese. And my business partner, David, was making lasagna one day and he had a tub of uh, ricotta out and, you know, realized that he wasn't going to use all this ricotta for the lasagna. And he started eating it by itself and just a light bulb went off and he thought, why isn't anyone doing that? So uh, we talked about it more and more. We did a little more research to see if there was actually any products on the market like this. We couldn't find any, so we took it upon ourselves to create one. And tell us about the mix-ins that go along with the ricotta. Yeah, so currently we have uh, five skews or five flavors. Uh, we have a serrano pepper honey, uh, regular honey, uh, sun-dried tomato, which is kind of like a pesto. It's oil-based, uh, Meyer lemon curd, and a sun-dried or sorry, a uh, strawberry balsamic jam. And you brought some to the office, guys who were there. Do you have any favorites? It's hard to choose a favorite, actually. They're but all really, really good. I I'm was a sucker for the for the Meyer lemon. That was just a really beautiful, simple, delicious pairing. But mm -hmm. yeah, they were really good. I really liked the strawberry balsamic. That was kind of hitting the spot of where I where I was at when snacking that day. Yeah. yeah what the, about you, Kat? The well, I like both of those answers because I think the acidity in those was. Oh, Guys. party foul. <laughs> Who left that water there? It's not mine, because mine's there. Um, I really like the acidity of both of those because they had, you know, the lemon or the vinegar in them. Um, but the sun-dried tomato really surprised me. I would not have thought of that. And I wouldn't necessarily think... Thanks, David, with the napkins. I wouldn't think that I would like sun-dried tomatoes that much. Yeah. How do you how do you make that mix in, Will? So uh, it's it's really straightforward. Um, you know, obviously it starts with using great ingredients. We use a an olive oil that would typically be sold at like an olive oil store, uh, meant to be eaten kind of by itself. So that's definitely one facet. Um, we also use uh, an all natural sun dried tomato. There's no preservatives. There's no sulfur. Uh, nothing like that. Um, and then basically it's just garlic, onions, a um, little bit of parsley and salt and that's about it and where can people find riffraff 
So it's available at uh, New York City Whole Foods right now. We're still in the middle of a, a test market. And then once we, you know, sort of figure out any issues that we may have, we're going to expand to the Northeast region and eventually yeah, nationwide. Cool. Amazing. Um, I want to ask you a little bit, too, about, like, the production of the ricotta itself. Like, where, where are you sourcing that from and what goes into kind of making that product to start with? So to, to get to, I guess, the recipe that we landed on um, took a lot of trial and error on my part. Um, every week I was, I was making ricotta in my house and, you know, trying different things out. And, uh, then we'd bring it back to my business partner's office and where they have a, a company of a uh, hundred employees. So we would use all of them as the guinea pigs every week and sort of give a little survey that they would fill out to help us improve on the recipe. Um, now, now we've obviously we've scaled up from my, my kitchen at home, but we're, um, producing everything in Pennsylvania. Um, and it all comes from, you know, local farms in the area. So all grass fed, no hormones, um, you know, very, once again, going back to like good quality ingredients makes a good product. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Um, okay. Well, I want to turn to Jared now. So Jared, you are in town with Sip Smith specifically for the, Bur the bar convent Brooklyn. Yes. And what is that for people who have never heard of it before? Oh. BCB, or Bar Convent Berlin, has been running for, oh, I think about seven years or now in Berlin and has quickly become Europe's top bar show. It, it's a remarkable show, and they've just brought it over to Brooklyn for the first time. I've been to a lot of shows when they first started up. I was at the first BCB in Berlin. I was at the first Moscow bar show, the first Athens bar show, uh, the first Tales of the Cocktail, etc. And I have to say, for a first-year show... Bar Convent Brooklyn was the best first year I've ever seen. It was a remarkable start. But there's such a great uh, bar community in New York, and everyone came out for this show. Why do you think they chose to do it in Brooklyn and not in Manhattan? Uh, better spaces to do it in, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> a little more laid back, maybe. Yeah. Um, so you are the master distiller for Sip Smith. Um, Sip Smith. Yes. I, I keep wanting to say it backwards, Smith Sip, and I'm like, that's not right. Actually, the, the name came about because my business partner, Fairfax's father, is a renowned silversmith. Oh. And he oh. watched us ah. watched us working on this formula for ages, and he said, you're doing with gin what I do with silver. You're taking raw materials. You're applying everything you learned from past masters and the tools you learned uh, how to use, and applying that to the raw materials to find the intrinsic beauty within. And he said, you are sip smiths. I love that. Uh, Before we get into talking about that formula, which I would really love to do, um, can we talk about your background a little bit and um, how sort of how do you come to be a sip smith? Uh, and, and Kat pulled some things from your bio online that we were intrigued about. Oh, Kat, yeah. do you have do you have the I the mean bio? this is from your own website, Jared. It said you're a drinks historian, which is a, definitely a whole other conversation. And then right after that it says underwear model. I didn't write this <laughs> website. <laughs> <laughs> but I won't deny any of this. <laughs> Tell us more. <laughs> I, I, I will say that uh, in the life of a model, my last modeling job was winter coats. Oh <laughs> Um, 
okay. sort of a, a story arc that, that we go through? <laughs> yes. And, and yes, there are photos. Oh, gosh. Oh, wow. Okay. So, yeah, we need to investigate further. <laughs> so maybe but everyone it, But there Google are other that. things on here. Um, book publisher, Bon Viveur, Cotswold Gardener, Gin Lover, Creative Genius, and then Master Distiller. So uh, tell us about your path and, and how did these various things come to be? Well, I'd say it began with three years of informal wine training. My stepfather was very passionate about wines, fascinated by my palate. But uh, after three years, I knew there was something more. And so, age 10, I did my first distillation. Wow. Wow. What? You must have some cool parents, that, that or, or they didn't know. Oh, uh, it was the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so I read in a book how the American colonists had uh, distilled hard cider into apple brandy. Upstate New York in the 70s, you couldn't buy hard cider. Well, age 10, I couldn't buy anything. So I (laughs) brewed off a batch, not my first. I'd been doing that for a few years and then distilled it off. It it wasn't fabulous. So age 11, I made my first liqueurs. First was a gallon of coffee liqueur and then on to raspberry orange liqueurs. I wasn't drinking these, I was tasting them, but that was it. And all for the flavor, I was always fascinated by flavor. Also, my mother, by that time, she'd already given up on trying to figure me out. (laughs) Age six, my friends are arguing chocolate versus vanilla. I was arguing with her because the octopus needs to be frozen and thawed for octopus vinaigrette, but you leave it in the freezer three months, it's just freezer burn, throw it out. So, uh, were you also experimenting with cooking, or was it specifically around alcoholic beverages? And cooking as well. Yeah. It, it all fascinated me. Yeah. That's one thing that you and Will have in common, the, the cooking background, for sure. Did you start early as well, Will? Yeah, actually, I started, um, I think I was about seven years old, and I used to make pies from scratch and wheel them around in my like radio flyer. Uh, red wagon thing and sell them to the neighbors. Oh, I love that. <laughs> that is next level in the neighborhood. So, How much not only cooking, but also business. Uh, <laughs> what was your, what was a seven-year-old pie's price point? I have no idea. <laughs> I, I feel like they were probably like 10 bucks or less. Or nice. <laughs> More lucrative than lemonade. For yeah. Sure. And I, I wasn't, I wasn't really worried about the finances. <laughs> Just in it for the passion. Yeah. And my mom paid for all the ingredients, so... Oh, yes. That's where, convenient. Where yeah. did your first cooking lessons come from? Um, well, so I guess from cookbooks, really. Um, when I was a teenager, uh, my family has a, a place in, uh, in Quebec, and we would go for the summer there. It's like a little lake town. And I used to make, like, sort of a version of sushi because that was something that I tried around that age, and... Uh, we never cooked at home, so I would make it myself with like smoked salmon and things like that, not actual raw fish. Um, so that was part of it. And then um, I used to, so after that, I started buying cookbooks um, from restaurants and things like that. And I would just, you know, make the, the recipes that were in them. But that was my first, like, I guess, on an informal, informal training. And then I went to French Culinary Institute. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, and speaking of, you said you were in Quebec? Yeah, yeah. My family um, on my dad's side is, uh, and his parents and grandparents have had uh, this little lake cabin uh, for almost 100 years, or over 100 years, actually. Well, similar but different. Uh, Jared, you spent a lot of time in Canada as well. 
you were telling me that you were in Vancouver. Actually, for two different reasons. My oh. family has been, my nieces and nephews are the seventh generation going up to Lake of the Woods in Western Ontario and going fishing in the summers. But uh, I went to Vancouver once uh, with my wife on a three-week visit, ended up staying three years and writing half a dozen travel books about it, wrote to Fromer's Guides, the third and fourth editions of Vancouver and Victoria, the ninth and tenth editions of Fromer's Canada, the British Columbia portions, and a couple of others. So is the travel writing pre or post getting into vodka? Um, travel writing came before getting into drink full-time. Drink had always been a passion, but I didn't know it could be a profession until uh, my wife and I accidentally wrote the world's best-selling book on the martini. Which is called? Shaken Not Stirred, A Celebration of the Martini. Uh, 1995, a friend of ours said, hey, you know this internet? I think it's going to be big. <laughs> you should get on it. Build a website. Halloween night. Anastasia's sitting in front of the computer. I walk in. She says, what are we going to build a website on? And I was holding two martinis. So we put up a martini website, and it exploded. Uh, this site just snowballed. And six months in, an editor from HarperCollins emailed and said, I love your site. I want to turn it into a book. And Shake and Not Stir, a celebration of the martini came out. It's still going strong. It's sold over half a million copies now. You just gave me a major flashback because, like Will, I, uh, I, I, my family cooked a lot, so I learned to cook from them, but I also love to cook from cookbooks, and I was laughing because sushi was one of my like, first things that I made that was like super different, um, and I also did the smoked salmon. A lot of smoked salmon and cream <laughs> cheese and cucumber sushi came out of that, mm -hmm. but um, I had a flashback because my parents had that book, and it was like in the stack like with my sushi book, and I love it because... Uh, there were some colorful things in there, too. I remember, like, a, the rainbow layering photos in there. But um, that's I, I hadn't made that connection when I read it, um, that that was that very self-same book. Um, but it's all in a kind of full circle. And then after that, did you begin making vodka? Um, from there, we actually made gin before we made vodka. Okay. We found our way to left Vancouver for San Francisco, six months in San Francisco, where we were trying to write five books simultaneously. Wow. We needed to get out of town and get someplace quieter, and we thought Boise, Idaho would be quiet. Sounds quiet. Was it? it no. <laughs> we didn't know that the guy who founded the Seattle Martini Competition, an international martini competition, a dear friend great partier, moved there the same week we did. Oh, no. And then we met this guy who was starting North America's first microdistillery restaurant, the Bardenay in Boise, Idaho. And Kevin Settles had never run a commercial still. We'd never run a commercial still, but he'd used our book to set up his entire bar operation. So the day after we met him, we were working in Bardenay, helping up set up a gin distillery. So Boise maybe was quiet until you all got there. Yeah, that may have been part of it. Uh -huh. <laughs> but uh, after a couple of years there, we were writing for Wine Spectator, Cigar Aficionado, and Food Arts at the time, and they strongly hinted they'd rather have us in Manhattan. So we moved back and quickly met these people who were making vodka in Sweden and Norway and wanted our help with it. And we found ourselves working in distilleries over there, commuting 
2005, we landed in London 24 times uh, on our commutes back and forth, decided we really needed to move over. Mm -hmm. So 2006, we did. But shortly after we landed there, we were approached to uh, direct the restoration of a museum of wine and spirits in the south of France, Exposition Universelle de Vin et Spiritu on Ile de Bendor, just off of Bandol, where the great rosés come from, between Marseille and Toulon. So three years kind of stuck on an island in the south of France with a <laughs> 9,000 bottle collection. Sounds going, terrible. Yeah, going back to 1811, <laughs> cognacs created to celebrate the birth of Napoleon's son, things like that. Has anyone ever called you the Indiana Jones of drinking? Uh, usually they asked me if... I. I think my favorite question was this taxi driver in Spain. I don't speak Spanish. He didn't speak English. We settled on French. And he looks at me in the rearview mirror and he says, Connez-vous la film Le Big Lebowski? The dude. <laughs> That's amazing. I love that. Um, wow. So, okay. You were also telling me before the show that... Yeah. Jen. Well, here we go. You know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. <laughs> it is just his opinion. Um, you were telling me that gin, gin cannot just be, to, like some people like to say, vodka made with juniper. It has to be a specific. It, it's like saying Chardonnay must be made with grapes versus made with Chardonnay grapes. Gin really needs to be made with the Juniperus communis, not grown any place, but grown along the North Mediterranean. That's the terroir that produces the juniper, that produces the flavor we recognize as gin. In fact, the Genoese merchants discovered that was a lucrative export to the rest of Europe. Juniper grew all through Europe, but from 1250 AD, they were selling them their juniper. And my distilling books from the 1700s and 1800s and even the 1600s specify this juniper source versus using domestic juniper. And it's different from the juniper that you can get in the U.S. Oh, very much. If you taste the juniper from the American Rockies, it's remarkably sweet and fruity. It's almost, almost a bubblegum flavor underlying it. Um... Will, I have a question. Do you have any favorite ways to drink gin while we're on the subject? Well, I wouldn't consider this a, a favorite way, but one of the best gin tonics I've ever had. Um, and it's, it's not a favorite way because I am likely, uh, probably not likely to try it again, but at Tickets in Barcelona, which is um, Fran Adria's place, they have this like gin and tonic that uh, taste-wise is, is just a really good gin and tonic, but it's pink and it comes with uh i guess i put uh uh what's it called dry ice in it so it's sort of frothing over it almost looks like a like a cotton candy and then you taste it and it's just oh this is just a really good gin and tonic <laughs> <laughs> Jared, the, the whole package was great because it was kind of kitschy but the, it wasn't like sweet or anything like that like a flavored gin and tonic mm. jerry you like recognize that Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm <laughs> trying to remember if the, the name of the bar is 40 degrees or 42 degrees, something oh, like that, yeah. that's connected to tickets. Yep. I, I can't remember which one it is, but yeah. yeah. But I've, I've spent a few wonderful nights in there. Yep. Great there's, fun. There's a lot of great gin and tonic places in Barcelona. They take it very seriously. They do. <laughs> is that the best place to drink gin and tonics? 
Oh. Like city-wise. Oh, that's, that might be that's hard. really hard to say. Um, certainly, I love the Copa de Ballon, the big oversized goblet that yep. they use in <laughs> Spain with oversized ice cubes, and they've fetishized the gin tonic there so that you load up the glass, you stir it empty for a while, and then strain out the melt water, pour in the gin, and then the tonic goes down the handle of the bar spoon into it or across the back of the spoon in an attempt to keep a bit more of the carbonation in, then it'll get garnished with, oh, say, three feet of very thin lemon twist boiled <laughs> on top with a few juniper berries, etc. Wow. And oh, about a three-ounce pour of gin on occasion. <laughs> Where I was working in Spain, um, the chef owner, Martin Barasategui, he every night he would finish with a, one of those filled to the brim of gin and tonic, and it was really uh, interesting to see. <laughs> One of one of my favorite moments, because in many bars in Barcelona, the bartender will begin to pour, and he'll wait for you to say that's enough. And I watched this poor American tourist who'd ordered a whiskey on the rocks, and it was just about up to the brim before his eyes widened. He said, stop. And the bartender said, okay. <laughs> um, Jared, what are some other... Um, very like culturally significant either places or styles of drinking gin that we maybe aren't familiar with. One of my favorites is the gin ricky, a, mm. a properly lost drink. And, well, it originated about uh, 1893 in Washington, D.C. Colonel Joe Ricky, Washington senator, policymaker, and bon viveur. Now uh, again. <laughs> <laughs> It, he came up with this drink that was just whiskey, soda, tall glass with the juice of half a lime. The gin ricky, dropping the, the whiskey, substituting gin, quickly eclipsed that, became the top-selling gin drink, arguably, in North America, 1890s to 1920. Uh, in fact, every gin would advertise they were the gin for a ricky. Mm-hmm. But today, if a bartender has done their history homework knows this drink, they're going to make the worst Ricky possible because the original recipe called for the juice of half a lime. But what nobody's picked up on is that in 1893 in Washington, D.C., they didn't have Persian limes. They had tiny key limes or Mexican limes, Mm. about a quarter of the size. So that drink really calls for a lemon or a lime wedge, not Uh, the juice of half a Persian lime. Important... Thank yeah. you. Although the half lime sounds good to me. I'm, why I'm his- a citrus freak. That's why history is important. <laughs> yep. I know a group of bartenders and distillers in Portland, Oregon that celebrate Gin Ricky Month for the yes. month of July. And there is a Facebook group you can join and you are supposed to drink a Gin Ricky every day for the month of July. <laughs> And take pictures and post pictures of yourself with your gin ricky. So it's not totally dead. <laughs> I'm going to have to sign up to that. <laughs> I like, like, you are supposed to. You're like, well, I, I have to. I have to do this. This yeah. is what you're supposed yeah. to do in July. You must. Yes. Um, one other cocktail I wanted to ask you about is the Ramos Gin Fizz. Oh, the Ramos Gin Fizz is a, a wonderful breakfast drink. <laughs> ah, why breakfast? Uh, that's what it was originally intended as, and uh, certainly they, they quickly started drinking throughout the day, but it's a soft, creamy gin drink, 
that, that wonderful balance with the egg white in it and the citrus and the gin and the cream. Originally shaken for 12 minutes uh, for a simple reason, because it was invented in, I believe it was 1886 or 96, or I'm a little jet-lagged, uh, and the blender was invented in 1935. Mm. Uh, otherwise, it would have been a blender drink. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, so, why do so you I make it wrong. <laughs> Should it have the ice really... You, combined you need through, to like shake it a long time to do it proper, to get a real ropey texture to it, oh. and real creaminess, at least three, four minutes of hard shaking for a great Ramos. Yeah, my, my hand definitely goes numb before yeah. that. Well, it takes a professional, like at Sazerac Bar somewhere in yeah. New Orleans, but they still do shake it. They, they, I don't think they would ever make it in a blender. Why do you think that people have decided... No, we got to stick with the shaking method. Because saying blender is heresy. <laughs> <laughs> what if you called it an electric shaker? Yeah. There you go. And there are some great electric <laughs> shakers. Automated. <laughs> but uh, there's, there's another heresy that popped up in history with Ramos Gin Fizz. In 1937, Governor Huey Long came to New York and was promoting the Ramos Gin Fizz and was pilloried in the national press for saying that there was vanilla in it. And yet... A Midwestern bartender in 1909 traveled to the Ramos Brothers Bar in New Orleans and spent a week watching them make it when it was still a top-secret recipe, and he swore the Dasher bottle that they used contained orange bitters, orange flower water, and vanilla. I've made Ramos gin fizzes with vanilla, and I will simply say it's phenomenal with a little dash of vanilla in it, so heresy or not... <laughs> Give it a try. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, on that note, we are going to take a very short break. And then when we come back, we're going to challenge Will and Jared to a little bit of trivia. And the theme is gin and cheese. <laughs> we'll be right back. <laughs> This is the story of men and women who shed not only their clothes, but also their... I'm Souther Teague of Moria Margo and co-host of The Speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by the Sexton Single Malt Irish Whiskey, a new and unexpected modern malt for the everyman. The whiskey is made from 100% Irish malted barley, triple distilled for smoothness in copper pot stills, and consciously aged for four years in Oloroso sherry butts. My favorite part about the Sexton is that sherry influence from those Oloroso sherry butts. They're the large sherry uh, barrels that have been used, and then the, uh, the whiskey gets aged in them for four years, giving them this sort of nutty, almost savory quality. Um, the copper pot still makes for an extremely smooth finish. Um, I like it in a highball or just neat. Uh, every time I have a sip, I, I want another one. So next time you're gathered with friends or posted up at your favorite bar, reach for The Sexton, the best-selling Irish single malt in North America. You can learn more at thesexton.com. Welcome back to HR and Happy Hour. I'm Kat Johnson. My co-host is Katie Mosman-Wadler, and our guests today are Will Hickox of Riff Raff, Jared Brown of Sipsmith. So um, just before we went on break, we've been um, sipping away at some, some Sips. Uh, this is a tongue twister. <laughs> we've been sipping our Sipsmith 
cocktails. And uh, so, Jared, I wanted to ask you about the formula for the, like, I, th- I think we should talk about the botanicals in this gin. And then also um, we should talk about the drink that we're enjoying it. You know, you can kind of hear that on Happy yes. Hour. We are always a little bit happy in here, um, but happier still when our guests bring cocktails. So um, tell us about the gin and tell us about the gin and tonic. Well, to create the Sipsimuth formula, we wanted to make an absolutely traditional London dry gin. Um, so we began with a formula from 1729, worked forward through about nine different incarnations till we got to the 1860s. One of my distilling books from that period has a dozen different gin styles in it. Today we can name London Dry Plymouth and Old Tom, but this book also had table gin, cordial gin, fine cordial gin, cream of the valley, west country gin, etc. And we made all of these to understand what a dry gin really was in historic context to create a reference point or benchmark to understanding dry gin. Uh, The formula, 10 botanicals led by juniper from the North Mediterranean, but then backed with Spanish orange and lemon peel, uh, orris root, licorice, angelica, cinnamon and cassia, uh, Russian coriander, and almond. An almond. Almond. Almond accentuates the smoothness of the pure English wheat base spirit. I don't make my base spirit in-house. Um, somebody once called me a crap distiller because I don't. It's, it's not, that I can't, <laughs> not that I can't make base spirit. I've made base spirit everywhere from Brazil to Vietnam over the years. But because it's not part of the tradition of making gin in London. Uh, the Gin Acts of 1736, 5051, and 1830 in particular separated people making base spirit from people taking that base spirit and making it into gin with separate licenses and taxes. And so I, as a traditionalist, I won't make it now, but instead found a family who've been making base spirit since around the time of that first act and worked with them to tailor this English wheat base. Well, that all sounds very good and proper. Um, is it? I'm, I'm hung up on the almond thing, though, too. Is it typical um, to find almond in oh, other... Oh, yeah, it's yeah. Not, not uncommon to find mm-hmm. it in there. Cool. Uh, I didn't know that. What is sadly uncommon these days is finding a gin that's not made from gin concentrate. When we started, I'm sorry, what? When we started <laughs> out, we had a 300-liter copper pot still. If I had overloaded the still with botanicals, I could have run off a gin flavoring and then used about uh, half an ounce into a bottle of neutral spirit and water and my 300-liter still could have made 9,000-liter batches. And that's the thing. That's how the bulk of the world's volume of gin today is made. The more you know. Wow. Instead, I don't add any spirit after distillation, just water to bring it to bottling strength. Mm -hmm. So my 300-liter still only made 300 liters, and to this day, that's exactly how we make it, and we'll always make it that way. Because at the end of the day, we also drink this. Yeah. Oh, that's so shocking. I, I actually had never heard of that. Yeah, done it, it, it that was way. a real surprise Makes sense, for us. I guess, it, yeah. It came up in the 1870s, which is why we stopped in the 1860s. Mm. Yeah, wow. That um, fascinating. Yes. Well, um, that is going to... Well, hold on before we go much further. I still <laughs> want to talk about the string. Um, what's the tonic that you've paired with the Sipsmith gin? Uh, what we're drinking right now is... Sipsmith London Dry Gin with um, Fever Tree Soda Water and Thomas Henry Tonic. 
Thomas Henry out of Germany, I believe is just launching into the US and is a wonderful tonic. I've been drinking it over in Europe for a long time and was happy to find that here today. And how do you feel about the tonic concentrates that are on the market? Oh, the tonic syrups? Mm -hmm. I think some of those are a lot of fun. We actually make one in the distillery that we haven't been selling, but we use it especially in winter when we want to make hot gin and tonics. Whoa! And what we do is we do a measure of gin, a measure of the tonic syrup, and then boiling water from the kettle and a big lemon twist. And the hot G&T is a great drink. Can someone yeah. can someone send me a reminder exploding. to re-listen to this in the can winter? Can we put this? Just, let's just put it on yeah. the calendar cap for yeah. like December twenty yes. first. Reminder: hot gin and tonic. Reminder: make yes. a hot gin and tonic. And well, the gin and tonic emerged twenty sixth of June eighteen fifty eight in London. Um, the hot G and T is something that a friend and I invented three years ago. Wow. Very cool. Uh, we were actually doing a play on the top gin drink of 1823, which was the hot gin twist, which was uh, gin, lemon juice, sugar, and boiling water. Mm. I can't wait to send you a picture of our hot gin and tonic in a couple months. <laughs> <laughs> a couple. Hopefully it's more than that. <laughs> a couple few. We, oh, we need some summer. Turn yeah. up the AC. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. All right. Okay. So well, we, we better get to the next segment of our show. Let's move on. All right. So we have a little bit of trivia for you guys. And it's a mix of trivia about gin and about cheese in honor of Riff Raff Ricotta. Okay. So the first one's, I think, a little bit of a warm up. What cheesy dish does not come from Wales and is not made with rabbit? Uh, Welsh ra- rarebit. That's right. <laughs> Kind of a trick question, but... My mom used to make that for me, actually. It's so good, right? (laughs) I love it. Um, All right. From which U.S. state is beer cheese said to have originated? Pennsylvania? No. Wisconsin? No. Good guess, yeah. It's uh, more southern. Oh. They... Alabama. uh, They they have... Well, that's still really giving it away. I mean, there's a classic drink that goes with an event. Uh-huh. That goes with the state. Well, now you're talking about Kentucky. <laughs> yes. yes, that's right. That's right. They said that it was originated in Kentucky and then sent to... The man who invented it sent it to a friend in Arizona, and that's where it picked up a lot of the, like, spice. They started putting, like, chilies in it. Oh, it was interesting. All right, next question. What garnish was popularized in cocktails when American drinkers began moving from sweet to savory flavors in the late 1800s? That would be the olive. Correct. (laughs) And in fact, the cherry growers in California sent out ambassadors across the United States begging bartenders to continue using cherries to no avail. Interesting. Oh, no. Okay, next question. What country consumes the most cheese per capita? Oh. It helps this question if you can figure out the cheese that's being consumed the most. It's a young cheese. This can't be France. No. I I think it's a northern country like Sweden or Finland. It is a Mediterranean country. It's a sheepy cheese. That would... Yeah, that would be Greece with feta. <laughs> Correct. But I'm still wondering how they won with getting the name feta 
being Greek only when Bulgaria, mm. I think, has almost as long a history. Really? Yeah, you know, I just think of this every time I feel the sting of not being able to grab the name London for London and London Dry Gin. Oh. Huh. Okay. Similar question, but about gin. What country consumes the most gin per capita? Well, you this might is not believe it, but yes, it is the Philippines. Yes. Wow. Uh, we have a trivia ringer in yeah, here today. So, <laughs> Predominantly so, Geneva San Miguel, to be exact. Is it? Is that a? Is that a gin made in the That's Philippines? That's a domestic brand of gin in the Philippines. Why, ha, when and how did that become <laughs> popularized? That's a great question, and I believe that would have cropped up in the 1800s. So thanks to col- colonialization? Exactly. Yes, okay. That's interesting. That's a fun fact for anyone. Mm-hmm. All right, last question. This combines gin and cheese. <laughs> Slow gin, S-L-O-E gin, which is made with the hand-picked berries of the blackthorn tree, pairs well with what pungent cheese? That would be Stilton. Yes. Blue cheese. Yes. Yes. That sounds really good. Yeah, it does. Well, that's all my trivia. Thanks for playing, guys. Thank you. Thank you. You, you won. <laughs> you won trivia. <laughs> Um, well, Will Hickox from Riff Raff and Jared Brown from Sipsmith, thank you so much for joining us on HR and Happy Hour today. Um, Katie, do you want to give the thanks to all of the, to, to the team that's in here? I know, I shall give my thanks. <laughs> um, but seriously, though, huge thanks to our stalwart engineer, David Tadashore. Thanks, Victoria Harvey, Hannah Forden, <laughs> Mary Margaret McCartney, and Jordan Werner. And my biggest thanks of all to you, Kat, my co-host. Thanks to Katie Moseman Wadler, the executive director of Heritage Radio Network. That's it for our show today. <laughs> we will see you guys next week, Thursday at 5 o'clock. And uh, don't forget to join us on the roof for Changing the Conversation at 100 Bogart. See you there. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. HRN Happy Hour is powered by Simplecast. 
Simplecast is a popular hosting and analytics platform that allows podcasters to easily host and publish to apps like Apple Podcasts. If you have a podcast or are looking to create your very first, check it out. Try it for free and save half off your first three months at simplecast.com forward slash heritage.